Fantastic. 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 Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Jeff didn't get my good morning song reference this today. I didn't. I'm sorry. Do you get it, Alex? I don't know if I do. Good morning. Good morning. Singing in the rain, brah. Oh, shit. <laughs> the classic Paul Thomas Anderson film, yeah. <laughs> Singing in the Rain, from 1952. Composed by Johnny Greenwood. Guitar yeah, player for composed Radiohead. by Johnny Greenwood. He wrote all the songs for <laughs> Singing in the Rain in 1952. <laughs> Time traveled to the future and started making uh, very different movies. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about Wes Anderson today, right? So we just do it. Yeah, and yeah. And we're talking about Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Thomas. We're talking about um, Paul W. S. Anderson's filmography. <laughs> The director of the Resident Evil films. <laughs> oh, I and forgot there was another guy. Terrible schlock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, his his first movie is his best. Wait, was it his first movie? I don't know. Event Horizon is probably his most interesting. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, if that's what he started with. I don't know. I'm not even going to research it either. <laughs> um, because whatever. <laughs> but today, the long-awaited episode, we've been teasing this for a while. Uh, and we just ended up pushing it back and back to give ourselves more time for this cinematic boot camp, which looking at it from more of a, a bird's eye view is not as tremendous as it felt. It's only seven movies. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, eight movies. My bad. I was <laughs> like, was that right? I better check that. People, uh, people are going to be angry. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson. We did. We watched all his movies. <laughs> I had seen almost all of them before. Um, Alex, I believe that's also true for you. Yeah, except for Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread. So, like, the most recent ones. Yeah, same here. And, Jeff, this was mostly an entirely new experience for you. Yeah, I had only ever seen There Will Be Blood, and I think I, I saw Boogie Nights, like, you know, long time ago when i was like maybe 10 or 11 but not not with any kind of memory that's why you should show your 10 year old boogie nights (laughs) (laughs) classic children's film about the pornography industry replete with suicide (laughs) reaction shots to mark Wahlberg's cock my parents worked a lot and i basically just watched movies that's what i did as a kid that sounds great well, so we we decided to do this uh, wisely or not shortly following our Fincher episode. It'll probably be the last director spotlight we do for a while because it's a much more intensive task than just like watching a movie and <laughs> thinking about a movie to do like eight or ten movies. It's kind of like boot camp, but <laughs> I was glad we did it because I don't know. He's he's. An amazing filmmaker. Yeah. Agreed. He yes. has this this really 
auteur style to him. Like he, it always feels like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And much like we did with Fincher, I hope we'll come to some discussion about why that is, because it's hard to put your finger on. But his movies are all shot on film. He's one of the last people who just refuses to go digital. He, he loves film. His movies look phenomenal. He writes all of them as well. Some are some are adapted from novels, which we'll get to. But he writes the screenplays. And he... I, I don't know. I would quantify him as a film lover's director. Like... Yeah, I'd say that's fair. He's not, he's not somebody who is... Like, his name doesn't resonate in, like, the mass consciousness, even in the way that a Tarantino does. But I've talked to people, like, I would recommend, like, I'll, I'll recommend Boogie Nights. And people watch it, and they'll be like, yeah, I was all right. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? Yeah. Did you, were you, like, did you see those shots? Yes. And they're like, <laughs> what do you mean? And I'm like, okay, got it. Whilst doing <laughs> research for Boogie Nights, I heard almost the exact kind of quote is that where someone was like, every time I recommend Boogie Nights, everyone just says, what, the porno movie? And then it says, <laughs> and it says something like uh, Philistines or something like that. Yeah, yeah, peasants. Uh, you goddamn movie peasants. <laughs> but no, yeah, I mean, and it it is, it, is, it is like that, right, for Boogie Nights. And like if somebody who didn't pay attention to the craft watched Punch Drunk Love, they'd be like, oh, that was a quirky movie with Adam Sandler in it. But I don't know. We'll get to all of this. Yeah. We'll get to all of this. Let's begin at the beginning. So we'll begin at the beginning. 1996, a young Paul Thomas Anderson is given $3 million to make a movie. This movie is Hard Eight. Yeah. So Hard Eight is. is the, whoa, what is? I said, yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it is. We'll <laughs> it sounded so so sensual there. I had to pause a minute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my voice just came Russell off a little... and my jimmies over here. I can't think my voice just came off a little scratchy. All the blood just rushed away from Jesse's head. <laughs> yeah. Man, I have to collect myself now. <laughs> I've never seen you like stop at your train of thought like that before. <laughs> Hard Eight. Sorry. Hard Eight is the story of a hard luck drifter played by the great John C. Riley, who is he's essentially taken under the wing of an old gambler named Sidney, played by Philip Baker Hall, who teaches him the tricks of the gambling trade. Uh John C. Riley falls in love with Gwyneth Paltrow before her goopscapades <laughs> of of today, mm-hmm. who plays a waitress slash prostitute. And some hijinks ensue involving Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, you learn eventually that uh, Philip Baker Hall has ulterior reasons for wanting to help John C. Riley's character. And I would say that the, the film has this simmering, understated tone that leads, it leads to moments of explosivity and violence, but generally is pretty quiet. And it lingers on the, the central figure of Sidney. In a in a really great performance by Philip Baker Hall, um, and I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna go to Jeff first because he hasn't seen most of these, so I'm curious to get his more or less unfiltered reaction. So Jeff, what did you think of Hard Eight? I really loved Hard Eight. Hard Eight 
was a movie that kind of reminded me why I love like kind of old crime movies. Now this isn't an old crime movie like Goodfellas or the movies I really enjoy, but Heart Eight still has this kind of Scorsese esque aesthetic to it, where it feels uh, like you're glimpsing into a window of a real life situation instead of an acted situation or something that has been written. And that's just really due to uh, Anderson's ability to utilize all of these tools in his toolkit. And what I mean by that is his ability to utilize his film and his camera movements. And I and we'll definitely get to camera movements throughout a lot of oh, these yes. movies. He that is, is definitely a, he's his... an accomplished, accomplished shooter of, of scenes. <laughs> shooter of scenes. That's what they say in the credits. I mean, I don't know why I'm not hired to be the movie guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Paul which, Thomas which Anderson. makes about as much sense of a statement <laughs> as the <laughs> last one. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I am, oh, we need a new movie guy in this world. <laughs> Get Jesse. <laughs> Send out the Jesse signal. <laughs> oh, my God. Imagine reading that review on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, 100% frustrating. <laughs> The good shooter of the camera. Done. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the good shooter of camera scenes. Yeah. <laughs> the only um, good mass shooter. Well, I like oh, I God. like that you brought up Goodfellas because what it feels like you you could learn that there's a, a a gangster past sort of thing going on with Sydney, and uh, it feels like somebody escaped from the end of Goodfellas, like one of those mob guys actually escaped. And like this is what they got up to in, in a quieter movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That it does feel like that. <laughs> yeah, it almost feels kind of like like if you took the Irishman and focused more on the lighter the latter half of um, Robert De Niro's character. Like you know, they, they show him as like an old man in a wheelchair. It's like you focus. It's like yeah, it's like an old gangster who is now out of the life and is trying to. Uh, somehow redeem himself for the things he's done in the past. And, I mean, what I'm going to try to really get into is Anderson uses all of these tools in his toolkit to really emphasize space and movement throughout his movies. All his movies feel very large. The environments feel very big because his ability to utilize steady cams, dollies, and cranes show that he is able to show the the scene from all of these single perspectives and then blend them together into sometimes very seamless single shots, um, mostly in Boogie Nights. And that's why I kind of emphasize this is because this movie is really Paul Thomas Anderson refining these skills. You don't see that much of each of these things that you see in later movies, and I really like that. I really like the idea that he's honing these camera movement skills that he will later become famous for. I love this. You jumped right into a question that I had, which was what elements do we see here that would flourish in his later films? Like what do we see that is going to become the PTA style? And I think you, uh, what my brain failed to conjure was the concept of these, these long complex takes when I call it, called him a good movie camera guy. <laughs> <laughs> Because he does, his films are replete with those amazing like film nerd shots where you just geek out over how complex and cool they are. Yeah, I was gonna say like it. The biggest thing that I see in this film 
is his like knack for letting actors act and these long takes and these long shots it allows for like I don't know. There's something about newer filmmaking. If you go all the way back to like the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, you know, which you're pretty well versed in right now, Jesse, you're going through that yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like actors were expected to carry conversations that were like natural and like fluid. It wasn't just like, okay, say this. Now we're going to turn the camera this way. And the person you're talking to is going to say this. It's very. There's a lot less cutting in old movies. Exactly. And I think that he does that very well in this movie. And you can see like how it would probably be really fun as like a serious actor to work with a director like him. Um, But I was going to say that going to your Goodfellas and Scorsese thing, I feel like he plays on the same themes in this movie, but there's something a little more sentimental about his movies, a little more like soft or emotional, maybe less traditionally masculine in the way that the story is being told. Than like, you know, the R&B music and the driving through the cars and everything like that. All I think is like Hank Hill driving around with like the helicopters chasing him and whatnot. Like there's something about that energy that's in Paul Thomas Anderson movies, especially this one. But it isn't quite like I'm making a gangster movie, you know? Does that make sense to you guys? I don't know. No, yeah, he's making a Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, like Um, what? Yeah, like I think he gets more into this. I think his like real attempts at this are when he gets to like there will be blood in the master. But I get the sense, and I'm curious what you guys think that it almost feels like Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to write the great American novel in movie form. Hell yes, and like like doing really well at it. Uh, um, yeah, because it's all of them have this element that's really strong. That's the the weirdness of America and mm-hmm. the weirdness of of people who live in America. All of these like left of center characters. You don't get stock characters in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. They're all oh no, yeah. They're all very much. It's like. I, I would liken him to Tarantino in a lot of ways. The the control that he has, the ability to make whatever he wants, and the the uncompromising nature of of what he wants to get out of his movies and making it happen. Also being so accomplished in doing it, but more so just having a style, like, and that's so hard to put your finger on. It's like, what is Tarantino's style like what it what is what exactly his is his authorial voice past the blood and guts right and everything past past the blood and guts but there's like there's a feeling there yeah when people are just talking in a room and you're like that's a tarantino movie yeah um and i would say it's the same for paul thomas anderson in in a less edgy way more more like a in a literary way yeah definitely paul thomas anderson really loves to write and you can tell that in his movies you can tell that he really enjoys creating these in-depth character dramas where characters really speak to one another and they really listen to one another and you feel like they have a relationship and they're not just two actors who have just met that day on set yeah that speaks to the point about the um what you said about it him being a good director of actors like letting actors breathe. Cause I was reading about inherent vice and 
how Joaquin Phoenix would use, he'd walk around in these scenes and have like the entire set. And so Anderson was like, okay, just light the entire set, like let him do whatever he wants and we'll just film him because Joaquin Phoenix will get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of lines in his movies that are improvised as well. It's funny, in Hard Eight actually, when Philip Seymour Hoffman shows up and he's like saying things and making fun of Sidney while gambling, I thought to myself, is he just ad-libbing all of this? Yeah. And it turns out he was. He ad-libbed all his lines there. That makes sense, yeah. It had a very natural feel to it. And kind of, it almost felt like he was laughing at his own ad-libs, so it was making it more genuine, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, he was yeah. almost, like, very into it. And I, I, I don't know. I, I really love that scene. I, don't know. I think it's a really great little, I guess you could call it a cameo. I know, right? Yeah. Like it's like it's a yeah. cameo of someone who will become like a major player in all of his movies. Right. It's not like so Hitchcock cameo or anything where he like see him drinking from like a water fountain in the distance or like eating a sandwich somewhere. <laughs> but like yeah, I mean it's yeah. a spoken role. It's I mean weird. it's a cameo by technicality, but yeah. it's just it's so weird because it's almost like it's it's an inter- it's almost like an introduction of a new hero in the Paul Thomas Ander- Anderson arsenal. And in film, uh, Hoffman wasn't like big yet. Really? I mean, yeah. I knew he wasn't 1996? like. Yeah, I knew no. he wasn't like huge, but I I thought he had at least done one thing. Didn't he have, had an Oscar nom at least at that point? I think he did for that movie he did with uh, De Niro, where he plays like oh. a transgender um, oh. person. That movie that movie is very interesting. I forgot. I can't think of the I name could right be wrong. now. But yeah, I, I thought he had an Oscar nom at least by that point. You guys might be right. Um, I don't know. I yeah, wouldn't be surprised no, if he did. It's great to see him kind of just in this little sneak peek of what's to come in the Anderson universe. Yeah, definitely. So if we're talking about actors, let's talk about Philip Baker Hall. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you Had you ever seen him in something before? You know who I confused him with initially, and I'm going to feel really bad for this. Ben Affleck? No. <laughs> no, I confused him. And now I can't remember the actor's name, but the actor who played the lawyer in the, um, or the older cop in the original Law and Order. I know that's super specific. Oh, Lenny Briscoe? Yes. Jerry, uh... Gerald Briscoe? No, no, no. No. His name is Lenny Briscoe in Law and Order, but did you know, I can't think of his name. He died, like, in the past 10 years. Yeah, yeah, he died, you know. He does kind of look like him. He was the voice of uh, Lumiere in... Beauty and the Beast and like the first regardless Disney yeah I, that's who I thought it was at first was I was like why why really he was like this big of an actor but you know, I I quickly was corrected I corrected myself but uh, yeah Philip Baker Hall was just unbelievable Jerry Orbach he was tremendous excuse me that's his name Jerry Orbach thank you yeah that's who I confused him with yeah um, Anderson originally wanted the film to be called Sydney yeah which yes. is quite telling uh, which is Philip Baker Hall's character the the old gambler. And that's that's part of why he, like, like the studio made him change it to Hard Eight because they're like, people are gonna think it's about Australia, because you know, fucking producers. God. Um, so he made sure <laughs> that he made sure with Boogie Nights. That's why the neon sign that says Boogie Nights is in Boogie Nights. <laughs> so it's like so they can't change it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's such hilarious. A smart play. Producers, man. Um, but yeah, Philip Baker Hall is it's it's this really understated weirdly sensitive performance you feel like he's holding a lot back 
and that kind of gives the movie its tone which which feels a lot like the character Sydney which is very reserved but you feel like there's something going on under the surface that could explode at any time that's why I call it like a simmering kind of movie would you guys agree yeah oh definitely especially the fact that he's mostly known I feel like as a character actor um throwing him in a lead is I don't know it's just interesting to me when when people seem to do that um I feel like character actors are honestly some of the best actors out in Hollywood you know like everyone reveres them as far as filmmakers go but they'll never give them like big chunks of screen time so it was no only in these smaller movies for some reason yeah. like Sam Rockwell and Moon exactly right like and they end up being these really good nuanced performances and things like that and I don't know it's almost like it's like akin to like you have novelists and you have short story writers and sometimes short stories just hit just a little bit harder than like a full-on novel will because it's like I hate using this term with this movie and maybe all movies but you know that term slice of life thing yeah. Oh yeah, we've we've made fun of this before. Yeah, it, it's definitely like one of those uh, uh, residual effects of having Philip Baker Hall as the leading character, right? You're like, I'm not following this guy with a super strong jawline and fucking six pack abs and like my Burt Reynolds fucking Charles Bronson like masculine hero stuff. Yeah, you're not following me around. Yeah, exactly. We're not. Following, <laughs> it's not Jesse. Um, yeah. So that that speaks to this idea of it being like very literary you know i think of joan didion and slouching towards bethlehem which is like a little vignettes of southern california central california life and it's like all of those little stories are just so real because i, I don't know they don't have the grandiosity i guess of a, like a big budget film i don't, I don't know so he's worked with varying budget but none of his movies have cost more than forty million dollars. Damn. And I'm gonna I'm gonna quiz you a little later on a couple of these and see what you thought they cost. I had a question for you, Jesse, if you were yes. willing. I had a I'm question not, but <laughs> you can try. Um I had a question. Why why do you think that uh at this point in a young Paul Tom Paul Thomas Anderson's career, he gets this small budget and these great actors what about him as a filmmaker do you think makes these actors try so hard? I don't know. I don't know if they all, I don't know if it's a an aspect of trying hard. Maybe it's that he gives them the freedom. I mean, I, 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 I really don't know. Because at this point in uh, in his career it's so early and that's what was kind of always sitting in the back of my mind while watching these first few of his movies is it seems like everyone is putting a lot of faith in him and trust and, and something that seems like he's he came into the movie industry almost with this earned amount of credibility yeah and you'll see that in boogie nights we'll get to the fucking cast of boogie nights holy bananas my friend even at this time some of the actors at the uh were just small like i think gwyneth paltrow hadn't done much in that by this time but i mean samuel jackson he had already been in goodfellas or, yeah sam yeah, jackson is a big one um you know um phil baker hall of course had already been a big time actor but john c Riley and gwyneth paltrow were kind of just kind of getting started maybe a little little ways into their career so i don't know i think paltrow was 
decently established that point. She was in Seven the year before, so that's that's, true. that's yep. around her. I mean, that's the only other time. movie I think I've seen with her in it. She's really good in the movie, I thought. Yes, she's great. I think Shakespeare in Love came after this movie too, just like a year after. Yeah, I believe that was ninety seven. She's gaining some steam, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I did not follow her career. Very preparation for the Goop Empire. <laughs> the Goop, the Goop episode yeah. where we go through the Gwyneth Paltrow oh, filmography and, t- and intersperse it with advertisements for Goop products. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this Goop thing is going to become a meme of of the podcast. Uh, Samuel Jackson yeah. is also in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> He plays like, I don't know, he has the aspect of like a coiled serpent. He's really good in it. Yeah, he's a great villain. Well. He's a great villain. This movie also has some little technical thing. It was interesting. Um, So Paul Thomas Anderson loves, so he shoots on Super 38, or uh, sorry, Super 35, my apologies, uh, film. And then he likes a particular aspect ratio. I believe it's 235-1. But he couldn't get that because they didn't have the anamorphic lenses at the time. So they had to force the aspect ratio, which is why the movie comes off a little bit grainy and stretched, Mm. which I thought was very interesting. It has this kind of claustrophobic vibe to it, almost like you feel the closed-in feelings that uh, John is feeling, John C. Riley's character. So I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit of film info. Yeah, he does these wide aspect ratios. It varies a little bit. Um, and I think the master he shot on 70 millimeter. Yeah. 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 But uh, well, He really likes this anamorphic 235. but And he shoots on it for a, a while. In Boogie Nights, he's actually able to get the lenses and, and do it true to form. But eventually he does default to the more like 185 like basic aspect ratio. It's interesting because as we get further away from the year of 1996, I look back and when I watch movies like this, I thought that maybe it was just like, this is the way that movies like that looked back then. You know, sometimes I'll watch newsreels from like 2000, 2001 or something. And it's like, wow, this looks really, really old. But it's cool to know that like, I didn't know that about the forced aspect ratio and everything. I mean, this is like a, director going all out and like he knows what he's doing from from the onset i guess um exactly oh, yeah. would you guys say his his filmmaking or his writing is stronger at this point at heart eight like do you think he came into the game with his writing foot forward or his like filmmaking foot forward definitely writing but it's hard to say because he was already such a brilliant filmmaker and and someone who can create such great shot composition it's he just doesn't use all his skills in Heart Eight. He's mm-hmm. just using a few. They're pretty equal. He'll go. He'll go full tilt. Boogie Nights in the, yeah. a year later. Yeah, yeah. Boogie <laughs> Nights is when you see like the steady cam and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, it's, uh... so yeah. Let's move on to that. Unless you guys have anything else to say about Heart Eight. No, no Heart Eight, great movie, great twist. I guess you could call it a twist. I don't know. It was just it's a great a, little. It's a minor twist. Yeah. yeah, it's a great little plot diversion. You know, it's like, oh, okay, now we see, like, we kind of knew that Sydney was trying to make up for some, t- some kind of wrong in his past. And that's a little jump to the end. And John C. Riley is like, kind of like needing this surrogate father. And I think surrogate fathers, displaced children is a theme that we're going to see a lot coming up in all mm-hmm. his movies. Oh, this yeah. is a big Paul Thomas Anderson writing theme is like, 
the effects on bad parenting and how it hap- like affects the children as they grow. Oh, that's that's Magnolia in a nutshell. Oh, and, yeah. and, big, and a big part, Boogie Nights, too. Yeah. Yeah, so the one year later, Paul Thomas Anderson makes Boogie Nights. You know, I've seen Boogie Nights many times, uh, like a number of Paul Thomas Anderson movies. It's one I end up revisiting every few years or so, and it just gets better. Yeah. This movie is an orgy in more ways than one. <laughs> It's it's about the porn industry, and it pulls very few punches regarding that sort of like strange mingle of glamour and seediness. But it's also a feast for the senses as regards acting, photography, music, mm-hmm. all these plot lines. It's just a wild and crazy smorgasbord of excess. Um, so the film shadows many characters, but mainly focuses on young Eddie Adams, played by... A very young Mark Wahlberg, Mark who Mark. meets porn director Jack Horner, played by the mustache himself, Burt Reynolds, <laughs> in the late 70s, and begins his rise and fall as the world's preeminent coxman, Dirk Diggler. <laughs> uh, fun times turned into desperately uncomfortable, uncomfortable times as the 80s commence. It's interspersed with hilarity, suicide, overdoses, friendship. And a lot of really genuine love, interestingly. And and sex, of mm-hmm. course. Lots and lots of sex. Um, I don't even know where to begin with this one. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. Well, I actually could uh, help us start off, if you guys don't mind, with this one. Um, I kind of... As long as you do it right, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of looked at this movie as... When I started watching it again, because like I said, I only seen this movie when I was young, and I watching it again as an adult and looking at it with a more critical eye, I'm, I'm thinking this is more of a movie about a sad downcast people who get put into an industry that preys on those very people. But also it's putting a very human light on an industry that we try to intentionally make inhuman. Mm -hmm. And, kind of shows that like these are people too that make this this industry happen so i'm just thinking like do you agree like do you agree that this movie is trying to emphasize more like the failure of the porno industry to maintain itself in the world of like new video or do you more think it's a character drama that's just the backdrop it's definitely a character thing it's um i mean it's a movie that's about a lot of things right it's about a guy with the giant cock that's one thing it's about. It's about the the times, like the 70s and the 80s, and like imbuing the viewer with that that feeling, you know, that like that's very specific to that era. I think it's, and I hate saying this because of Fast and the Furious memes, but it's also about family. <laughs> it's about these people who. It's about people who find family in this in this crazy industry that couldn't really find it anywhere else like you see Mark Wahlberg has a really strained relationship with his abusive mom and stuff like that um you have Julianne Moore who for me is the absolute heart of this movie she is this the emotional core the mm-hmm. center and she i think she wins the movie if i had to give it to anyone she is just heartbreakingly good as this 
she's a porn actress, but she's also like a mom who can't see her children. Mm-hmm. So she ends up like being a surrogate mother to this whole menagerie of characters, most most especially Mark Wahlberg and Heather Graham as Roller Girl. Um, so yeah, I mean it's, and it's also a strange movie because it's a movie where, despite its rise and fall, you know, you you see it, you see this this industry centered around Burt Reynolds' house, um, at its height when they're like making big movies they're doing stuff with plot lines yeah uh which we'll get to which is wonderful <laughs> um and then all the way down into just the absolute most depressing depths that you you can see in a movie like that scene when when roller girl is or, or when they're trying to find people on the street to have sex with roller girl mm. It's just about the most depressing, awful thing. So desperate yeah. on all levels in that scene. Even Burt Reynolds' character, he's like lost his golden boy. He's tried it with a new kid to do the plot-driven stuff. And he even he's like, no, we're going to try something new, all real, hold the camera. You know, he, I don't know. Even in him as like a filmmaker, you see this interesting like, dude, you were just like churning out these good movies and now you're sitting in the back of a limo like just as lost and desperate to try and, I don't know. It's like when the person's like, no, this is about art, you know? This is like real raw life and grittiness and you, I don't know, I just, you don't quite believe in the project that he's doing at the time. Then it gets you got, violent. Yeah, I mean, if, if you put yourself in that position that he's in, you know, AIDS is now kind of closed off this world of free love. Mm, the movie doesn't touch on that though. It doesn't, but it, it, it's kind of some background that I think matters to the movie. And is that, you know, the porno industry was changing so significantly and these characters were forced to change with it. And they were so comfortable in this family that they were in. I really like that you emphasize that. This is my point though, I, that I, I sidetracked massively off of. And talking about the the sort of rise and fall, like you have the 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 roller girl scene, you have Mark Wahlberg getting beaten up in a truck, mm, and like, mm-hmm. and then you cut to John, Don Cheadle buying donuts, which I loved. That's the big yeah. <laughs> but I'll but I digress on yeah. that. Um, <laughs> but it's a movie. It's like a strange epic that where nobody learns anything. I, I feel like these characters are the same characters at the end of the film that they were in the beginning. Sure. And I don't know, there's there's a there's a sweetness to that that I find endearing. Like there's something nice about it. And I'm not quite sure why. That's I think it it ties into like how lovably dumb Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley are in this movie as well. Yeah. It's just like it's 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 like a weird sweet innocence at the core of like the most depraved industry on earth. Yeah. It, well, outside of trafficking or whatever. If you had Scorsese going back to our heartache discussion, if you had him direct this movie, it would be all about the edginess and the fastness of the environment and, and whatnot. And yet like, like heartache, this movie is even like softer, I want to say, or more sentimental um, when it comes to the treatment of the characters and like, like there's even there's something so like innocent about when Don Cheadle is talking to the other African American woman 
who's like the porn star with them. I can't Foxy something, I think is her name, or maybe that's Julianne Moore's character, but whatever. And she's like, you know, you got to get out of this no, cowboy Amber thing. waves, Amber waves. Got it. She's like, you got to get out of this cowboy. Look, right. Like no one cares about this anymore. And it's a really quick scene. And he's like looking down at himself and you can see him like in his face, like Don Cheadle's like, but this was like my vibe through like the seventies. <laughs> this was me. You know, and she's like, this is, we're in like a new time. You got to like ditch that shit. And it's like, that sets up like a, a tiny little like subterranean character plot line for Don Cheadle's character. And he does that in almost every single character in the movie that isn't quote unquote, like a main actor, right? You have Luis Guzman doing the same thing with his, his club and his restaurant promotion stuff. You have um, Philip Seymour Hoffman with his own little type of like subplot and like yeah scotty the effeminate cameraman and number one dirk diggler (laughs) fan yeah this the paul thomas anderson loves these characters oh yeah you can just tell there's there's a a genuine love for them that that shines through to where you do too even though they're not like the best people but they they are who they Mm -hmm. are and they don't make any apologies about it and they're just i don't know they're kind of lost and it's a uh, yeah. I mean, let's talk about this cast, right? <laughs> you got Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, Heather Graham, John C. Riley coming back. You got Louise Guzman, Don Cheadle. You have William H Macy doing what he does best, playing a horribly pathetic individual. <laughs> 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 Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall comes back yeah. for a nice scene, and the the vastly underrated Thomas Jane shows up later. I mean, what a cast. Yeah. It's uh it's pretty stacked. Holy and it's pretty I mean, it's kind of what I up to the point I was making before is like it seems like Paul Thomas Anderson just attracts this talent that is willing to give all of themselves to these movies and it seems like they really are interested in the content itself. Jesus. Dogs. Yeah, it also, this kind of shadows the Tarantino thing, where Tarantino at first made a a low-budget movie with a lot of really great actors um, who weren't necessarily, like, top of the line. It wasn't, like, Tom Cruise or something. Are you talking about Reservoir Dogs? I'm talking about Reservoir Dogs. But um, my my analogy here with, with the second film is Tarantino's second film was Pulp Fiction, mm. where you have all these heavy hitters, just like... Um, Paul Thomas Anderson has here in Boogie Nights. So it's like once I think once people saw Hard Eight, they're like, Oh, I want to work with this guy. This guy's going places. Yeah. So so what do you think the budget was for Boogie Nights? Think about this movie, how lavish this production is. All these amazing actors. What do you think this movie cost? I'm gonna say in the ballpark of around fifteen to twenty. I don't know if that's okay to give myself a little five million dollar like probably say like yeah 10 yeah it's 15 okay. million yeah which uh as we've said we've said in a few other contexts it's not a lot of money no especially for to pay all these actors especially salary. for this this looks like one of the this is like one of the best looking movies you will ever oh, see oh yeah like not only just the 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 film stock just the the color everything but also in the way that 
that Paul Thomas Anderson is a great movie camera guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, this is when when you see like it's really all shown. He he shows all his skills in that first shot in the movie. That first shot, that, that long opening look. shot. He I starts call with it the crane, and then the, the Goodfellas the, shot. Yeah, the crane comes down. The camera operator hops off. He starts moving. Then you get the steady cam. All the way following down the hallway. I mean, it's just in the long single take. It's just, it's just beautiful. I think that maybe one of my favorite scenes in all of film. It's not even a scene, but sequence. I can say is the when Don Cheadle's character opens his store, and they're filming the commercial for it, right? And it's oh, the beach horribly boys. embarrassing commercial. Oh yeah come on inside us or whatever. And it's like the beach boy starts playing. God only knows. And we talked about the soundtrack. The soundtrack to this movie is fucking amazing. Um, but John Bryan as well, the composer that, uh, he worked with a lot at, towards the beginning of his career, Paul Thomas Anderson, he does this sequence where the very end of the movie, Burt Reynolds, it's like the cameras behind him. Right. And it's following him through the house. And it, I don't know. It's just always been one of my like most favorite scenes in any movie. And like I, every time I watch the movie, I'm almost brought to tears because of the crazy slag through desperation we've seen the characters go through. You have this yeah. really, like you said, Jesse, sweet is a good way to put it. It's this sweet ending to this movie that's just like when he sees Julianne more in the mirror and everything. I'm not going to like say it play by play, but it's just like. I don't know. It was just so perfect. Every time I watch it, I'm like, this is exactly what I needed as a viewer. For the, I needed this movie to end this way, and I needed it to be shot this way. And every time I watch it, there's something new about that scene that I'm just like, man, this is more amazing than the last time I watched it. So your favorite scene wasn't uh, Mark Wahlberg and John C. Reilly playing 80s guitar music? <laughs> that That was a really good way to show the desperation thing, though. Like, it's so funny. Oh, it's hilarious. It's so funny. They're so bad. You got the touch. <laughs> you got the power. But he sings like worse than me. Yeah. Like a lot. That was like way better than, than yeah. them. Um, yeah. That, dude, their dynamic is so fun. I challenge you to to not have a smile on your face whenever these two like idiot children basically Played by Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley are on screen. Oh, Something to do with John C. Riley as well. He's just is naturally comedic, and he's I love him in everything. Oh, he's great. He's so good, and I'm so glad that he's like kind of. You can say that there are bigger actors that Paul Thomas Anderson works with, but John C. Riley is like some. There's something about him that like he needs to have in Paul Thomas Anderson's. Like I need you. I need the ty- your type of character in my film. And it makes it so much... I don't know. I like how he plays the role of kind of like the cool schoolyard kid that's already in the industry. And then he sees this young, like, hotshot roll up. And it, and at first, he, like, tries to act up, like, this, like, masculine, like, front. And then they just end up becoming, like, really good friends. Yeah, hanging out together in the hot tub. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they end up... They end up... One of my other favorite sequences is they end up starring... As seventies porn detectives yeah. in this like in this like montage sequence yeah. that's like shot like an old seventies thing. And it's like they got the mustaches, they do karate, 
they say the detective lines like the cheesy detective lines <laughs> and i was just giggling the whole time um another another of my favorite parts of this movie is it's established that that dirk diggler mark Wahlberg, has like an enormous cock but you don't see it for the entire movie until the very end but whenever he takes it out it cuts to these reaction shots of other characters looking at it and their faces are fucking hysterical. <laughs> yeah, that's probably my favorite as well. What was his name? The general, the, the colonel, the, the colonel. colonel, when he sees it, I love it. He like tips his glasses down, his shades down just a little bit. And like his eyebrows raise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful, sweet story. That's, it's basically, it's got glitz, glamour, seediness, disgust all rolled into it. But it's all all told, it's I think it's a very sweet story. Yeah, and definitely. it's immaculately acted by everybody, especially Julianne Moore. Um, Burt Reynolds is also, of course, like perfectly cast. Yeah, and this is, is this is his uh, only Oscar nomination. It's funny because he hated this character. He hated the movie. He yeah. hated this character so much, and he hated and him and Paul Thomas Anderson fought all the time. Yeah. It makes sense, right? This guy's out here trying to make like a sensitive literary type movie, and you have fucking Burt Reynolds rolling around on set with a cigar. And like, I don't know. The energy was good, though. It, he Paul Thomas Anderson was really good at corralling this energy into this character that, I don't know. I think he's one of the, he, he was so good in it, but... It fires on all cylinders, man. I will say, too, there's a definitely a theme arising here in the works of Paul Thomas Anderson, and it's just masculine theory is the way that I'm going to throw it out there. He examines men and the things that men seem to do on different spectrums of the emotional spectrum. <laughs> nice. Hmm, that's interesting. I see it more as, like, I mean, I, I like again another Fast and Furious thing, but like you know, I see him as like he really focuses on family and misplaced parentage. I think I'm just thinking that I think every single like main character or like driving character in his films are men in different stages of their lives. But you're definitely right about mm-hmm. this idea of like surrogate fatherhood. I think I think yeah, that operates to greater or lesser extents. I think Boogie Nights is fairly well balanced because you have Heather Graham and Julianne Moore in there, mm-hmm. um, and like I said, Julianne Moore is is the heart of the movie. Um, but but I think and and Magnolia as well. There's I think it does the the female point just as much as it does the male one. But I think you're right later on especially like punch drunk love onward yeah yeah especially when you get to like yeah i don't know we'll get to it yeah <laughs> so before we get on to the next one i wanted to run a couple things by you so there were a few other actors who were in the talks to play dirk diggler and i wanted to get your reactions okay number one jason lee no way yeah really yeah jason lee my name is earl diggler (laughs) (laughs) 
I I make jokes in Kevin Smith movies. Yeah, now here I am. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. I, yeah, that's I don't interesting. That. Okay. You have Christian Bale. Okay. Yeah, I mean, still, I wouldn't put him in this role, but I definitely think he could do it. Well, that's the thing about this role is like. I could not see anyone except Mark Wahlberg playing it. It's sure, those, but you know, but if we had to, you know, if you know, yeah, we're, we're looking at this in a vacuum. Perfect okay, mixture. So of we we can vote. We can vote who's the replacement. So we have Jason Lee, yeah. Christian Bale, our Lord and Savior Ben Affleck. Oh God, which would have been interesting. Oh, that movie would. I have think failed. he would have actually been like, at the time, ninety six, right? Like. Or 97, excuse me. Ben Affleck had enough, like, seemingly, like, moxie, like, young, jovial moxie to maybe make this role work. Something about Mark Wahlberg, like, I don't know. He was just, I don't know. I can't see it. It's Mark, it's Marky Mark's best movie, in my opinion. It's his best performance. Oh, easily. Um, Well, except for Transformers 5, but, you know. I was Nothing waiting for it. That. I was like, all right, when he's going to reference the shitty movie that Mark <laughs> does, I was waiting for it. <laughs> you know me so well. Um, speaking of Ben Affleck, Matt Damon was also in talks. Well, of course, because Ben Affleck was probably like, hey, if you're going to audition me, you got to audition my best friend too. Yeah. I think a young Matt Damon could have done this really well. Okay. And uh, Leo DiCaprio. Oh. <laughs> Damn. These are like, the big ass leading man that he considered. That's my vote. Leo's my. No, vote. see, I don't think Leo was good yet at this point. That's true. Career. That's true. He was too young at this point, and he still had too much of that little like innocence thing going on. I mean, so does Mark Wahlberg, but he like had the acting chops to pull it off. Don't get me wrong; I like Leo. I've liked him for a long time, but in the '90s, I did not think he was a very good actor. That's just a personal opinion. Yeah. I could see that. Um, but it was it was thanks to Leo. Like, Leo, I think he was going to do it, but he was attached to Titanic. So he recommended Mark Wahlberg. Hmm. So I guess they were buddies. I don't know. Uh, and that's Boogie Nights. Boogie Boogie. Nights. It's a good one. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, carnival. It, it's, it's literally it's like a carnival. A carnival. <laughs> it might be a masterpiece. Hmm. It's funny that you say it's like a carnival, actually, because John Bryan, the composer, named a lot of the original soundtrack stuff based off like circus things, like the last. That's how it feels to me. The big top, the like the the whole kind of like the way that the non-diegetic music like mixes with reactions of people in the movie. Like you have Burt Reynolds and like the using of the actual songs that were popular at the time. And I just think that a lot of it was done very intentionally to kind of focus in and laser in on this carnival type sortie that's going on. You have these like injections of really psychedelic neon color and then all of a sudden it'll go to like more flat dramatic scenes with like washed out grays and blacks and it's just it's a carnival they just it's it, the whole movie to me felt like i was like watching like cirque du soleil but with big dicks uh, <laughs> <laughs> you said a good word there which is intention and it's something we talked about a lot with fincher where it's like when you're watching a really good director everything matters and everything is is for a purpose and you really feel that 
shine through here. Like it's just, he's so in command of what he wants to do. It feels much looser than something like a David Fincher movie. David Fincher movies are much more, I don't know, buttoned up in a way. Focused. That's, that's focused. Yeah, like laser focused. Paul Thomas Anderson movies are a little more wild and dreamy, especially later on. Um, but yeah, so two years later, 1999, we get Magnolia. Jesus. Which is a messy, beautiful, unwieldy behemoth of a film. It clocks in at over three hours, and it's host to a small menagerie of different stories and characters. It's kind of like a series of short films. There's no overarching plot in a traditional sense. Instead, the movie cuts back and forth, around and around, to different moments in the 24-hour life trajectory of these characters in Los Angeles. So you've got Tom Cruise as a famous pickup artist, William H. Macy in yet another role as a supremely pathetic man, <laughs> this time a grown-up version of a quiz show boy who got dicked over by his parents. Um, you've got an actual quiz show boy who's bullied by his dad, Julianne Moore as a psychotic lady, John C. Riley coming back again as a cop who falls in love with Melora Walters who is just mainlining cocaine this whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, which we learn Claudia. is a way for her to deal with her past child abuse at the hands of her dad, who runs the kids' quiz show, played by Philip Baker Hall. Uh, you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman as a nurse who takes care of an old dying guy, who we later learn is Tom Cruise's dad. So it's it's an interesting spiderweb of characters, with this omnipresent theme of child abuse and how people deal with it. It doesn't show child abuse or anything like that. If people are like going to not watch it based on that, but it more deals with the, the psychological ramifications of people who have grown up with, with varying forms of abuse, whether it's psychological or physical or whatever. Um, so like I said, what, well, I'm going to go with you first, Jeff, because mm-hmm. you hadn't seen it before. Yeah, and no, I got a lot to say about this film, so I'm really happy to, to really be able to jump in. Fucking hell, Magnolia. Never has a film, I don't want to say never, but rarely does a film like this make me feel so sad to be a human than this film does. And it's not in a bad way. It's just in a way where you realize kind of just how all of us are kind of just going through our very little insignificant lives. I really think that Anderson used all that he had learned to create in the first two movies to create this like really thoughtful character piece. He uses all of the skills we've talked about. He uses the cranes, he uses the steady cams, the handhelds when he wants to create like quick, you know, moving action over the shoulder. But really it's about coincidence and, and fate and how these things are at odds with each other. And I really like that theme a lot in this movie. Is like, do we, are the actions that we take create the results or are these all predetermined? And I like that it, it, it's kind of not quite a love letter to LA, but more just the life and energy. A lot of his movies are a love letter to LA. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's, LA is like in his DNA. It's not, it's more. A love letter to L.A., not Hollywood. 
which is, I think, an yes. important mm-hmm. significance. Important distinction. Yeah. Yes. Like, this is not about... He doesn't about, do Hollywood. He does L.A. Yeah, this is about L.A. And specifically the movie's Magnolia because the titular avenue in L.A., Magnolia Avenue, where you see, like... Um, That's where Alex cruises for honeys on the daily. <laughs> uh, John C. Riley, you see him cruising down this avenue and all of this underbelly and life that's in the that's just going on in this one avenue all these little snippets of life this guy like climbing through the dumpster and this person getting beat up over here these are all these little snippets and i think that just ties so beautifully into the movie where it's just these little snippets from these characters lives and again we see the themes like i'm I'm, we've been talking about in the last two movies of just what happens when children are abandoned uh, mistreated and what happens to them as adults and how they manifest those feelings so yeah, mm-hmm. this movie all in all just really ticked a lot of boxes that interest me, you know, psychological. You also get frogs raining from the sky. Yeah, and the weather that transition. That happens as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. And I think that <laughs> plays into like the weather transition titles, the title cards that come in yeah. instead of time and date. Instead of like this street at 10 o'clock, it's 45 degrees with 90% humidity. You know what I mean? Like, right, that's obviously yes. wouldn't happen, but that's just such an interesting choice and you never see it again i don't know i think it was just a funny little choice alex what do you think of magnolia it's definitely like you said um unwieldy it is uh i don't want to say it's messy because it's not messy it's i think it's messy until you you kind of figure out what it's doing like i've said we've said that uh, it's about a couple of things but when i finished watching it and I couldn't remember it, so it, it felt like watching it for the first time. I was like, what was that movie about? You know? Because you, you can say, you can point to to the elements of, like, psychological abuse or, or child abuse and stuff like that. But there's so much going on in this movie that if you didn't pull that out from watching it, I would completely understand. Because it's not, it's not stated you know, it's 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 a very understated thing mm-hmm. to go back to, like, sort of the vibe that Hard Eight had, where you don't have characters being like, "I was abused," yeah, and that yeah. makes me feel blah blah blah. Yeah. It's very much like, no, you just see these characters be who they are, and you tease the meaning from that, which is a really smart way to do it, and ties into like how adept Anderson is at writing much less you know filming being a good movie camera guy <laughs> we we might all we might not always preface that these movies are gorgeous but they are yeah. every single one yeah. of them is is absolutely gorgeous they're some of the best looking movies you'll ever see yeah i mean just from just composition coloring editing i mean it yeah all the technical details check 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 are all there sound design uh he works with very specific composers on each movie, which I think is interesting. I mean, it was a lot of times we'll try to work with the same composer, but I think one of them passed away. But um, yeah, starting around uh, there will be blood. He starts working with Johnny Greenwood mm-hmm. from um, the band Radiohead, and I believe he scores all his movies after that. Um, I think I got one of the other guys from Radiohead did another one of the movies. John Bryan was like his the the main guy that he used for uh, a long time. 
Okay. Yeah. So he did him, and then he had Johnny Greenwood. He used Tom York for a movie. Um. But yeah, back to Magnolia. Who do you think wins this movie, actor wise? Who Tom had Cruise. the most difficult role? Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah. This. He. To me, this is Tom Cruise's best performance. Like he bodies this role. Like the, the when he's giving those speeches on the stage and he's so a snake oil salesman but also kind of is believing his own bullshit at the same time and you can see that struggle in him and it's almost like foreshadowing to the master and like that struggle of Philip Seymour Hoffman like knowing he's full of shit but not admitting it (laughs) it's like it's the same kind of struggle I think that uh, Tom Cruise's character is feeling and he just emulates it so passionately and just those gyrations and like the scene when he's just like his pants are down his ankles and he's just like gyrating in his living room and they're like (laughs) filming him it's just so it's like you can like only someone who kind of believes in their bullshit would stoop to that level and i just think that that role is so convincing as tom cruise i found myself latching on to john c Riley's character a lot in this movie for some reason um, I don't know why. I think, I don't know. But I think that Tom Cruise actually, like, if I were to be objective about it, is definitely, like, probably the driving force of this movie. He is just, like, uh, I don't know. I've never been big on, like, motivational speakers or, like, people who, like, brand themselves as, like, pickup artists or anything like that. And it's a really good, like, way to show, like, what type of person you need to be and what kind of life you've need to lead and the things that needed to have been done to you to end up like the way that you are. And Mm -hmm. I, I I love that aspect of of Tom Cruise's character, but for some reason, John C. Riley, I think maybe just cause, cause it's John C. Riley. And it's like, you know, he's in with the whole love, like romance thing. And I, I, I don't know. I just, yeah, he's this sweet, sad guy yeah. who's just like looking for love, <laughs> and he finds it, and it's nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm gonna agree with Jeff here. I think Tom Cruise like knocks it out of the park. Very difficult role. This is back when Tom Cruise like did acting more so than just playing the Tom Cruise character. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where he's like Mission Impossible guy <laughs> in every movie. Um. But yeah, Magnolia. Magnolia is a film, man. Wild, Watch it. Yeah. Wild, weird, mm, I would call it kind of messy. Not as economical as Boogie Nights or Heart 8, but... No, like, it's uh, it's doing its own thing. Yeah. It's definitely an experiment. It's and a movie that had space to breathe and know what it wanted to do, and that's fine. Magnolia? Yeah. Hmm. Had space to breathe. I, I I think this. I think everything about Magnolia is intentional. I think a hundred percent. I think oh, the, the the disjointedness of it. It's supposed to give you this feeling of like this disjointed, just how life is disjointed. It's such a it's such a beautiful piece of what it means to be a human. Yeah, it's a another Paul Thomas Anderson writing the great American novel on film attempt. Yeah. Exactly. And a pretty good one. <laughs> it's definitely worth watching. Definitely a big world too, like you were saying earlier, uh, Jeff. Like he, not really atmosphere, right? But like just this whole cacophony of themes and space and like action going on in small little vignettes of short stories and stuff like that. 
Oh yeah. I think this also speaks to to the rewatchability of Anderson movies. Like I I find a lot of them, if not all of them, like pretty goddamn rewatchable because there's so much going on. There's so much, not just in the craft and the shots and the performances, but a lot of the time, like you say, all these understated themes that are just like, like an underground network beneath the veneer of the film. And you can always tease out something more. And they're always very gratifying productions to go back to. Um, so, 2002, we have a romantic comedy starring Adam Sandler. <laughs> and you're like, what? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is a strange, sweet, awkward love story about a repressed man-child with severe anger issues. Yeah. He has seven sisters, I believe, who constantly nag him, make fun of him call him gay boy that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and this leads to these continual outbursts of violence from him in one of them he kicks out the glass doors at a dinner party in front of everybody the like sliding glass and in another scene yeah the sliding glass doors and another scene he angrily trashes a bathroom at a restaurant so the the core of this movie is basically this it's about this character barry egan played by adam sandler falling in love with one of his sister's friends, Lena, while at the same time dealing with the fallout of a call he made to a phone sex operator who works for Philip Seymour Hoffman, (laughs) uh, who sends thugs after him to take all his money, beat him up, and just generally cast a pall over his life and the film. So it's, it's sort of a romantic comedy, but I feel like that's just the surface. There's, there's, like we said with Magnolia, there's so much going on here beneath the veneer. Yeah. So Jeff, <laughs> you did not want to watch this movie. Yep, and I stand by that. Ooh. Really? Oh. Yeah. I I fucking hated this movie. Oh no! Wow. <laughs> and not for any reasons you might think it is. I hated for okay. all. I hated it for all the reasons why Paul Thomas Anderson's an amazing filmmaker. Okay. What does that mean? So first off, I just think it's a little funny tidbit. Paul Thomas Anderson is the only director ever to work with Adam Sandler and Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, that's... <laughs> so I think that's funny. That's range, baby. And he said that in an interview. They were like, what actors? It was right after Heart 8. They were like, what actors do you want to work with? And he was like, um, Adam Sandler, Daniel Day-Lewis. And he actually worked with both of them and is the only one to ever do that. So I think that just goes to show his like his ability to see things that I guess others can't see in actors. So Barry Egan is first off, um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that meme where it's like the clip of Twitter and it's like I'm in this post and I don't like it. I, I'm in this movie and I don't like it. <laughs> like so, Barry Egan very much reminds me of me. Oh. Um, Kind oh, of just okay. an angry a person who's grown up very like angry and tried to like repress all of that bullshit, but like it, it came out. It, Barry Egan more reminds me of me as a kid, not me as an adult. Now as an adult, I'm very much more like collected. But as a kid, I did a lot of this type of shit. I would have these like violent outbursts because just my life situation was so shitty, and I see a lot of that in Barry Egan as a character, and it was uncomfortable. For me, it was it, it, mm. I didn't like seeing that part of myself in that lens. 
So that was a little bit. The sisters are... I mean, Jesse, like, he made it really light when he's like, yeah, they call him gay boy. They're some of the most, like, deplorable human beings that I've ever, like, witnessed in a movie. (laughs) They're so just awful and uncomfortably so to the point where it's, like, it's cringy for me to, like, listen to them just berate and talk to this person that I kind of self-identify with. So this is a very personal movie for me. I just... I, I have felt uncomfortable watching it the entire time. Mm. I didn't like the, the 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 subplot with Philip Seymour Hoffman and the sex work. I found it to be like I just felt awkward the whole movie. I felt this constant it is, like it is a very awkward movie. You have to just just embrace that. And I kind of like go just felt it. myself gritting my teeth, and I have this like uncomfortable knot in my stomach the whole time. And I and this is all to Paul Thomas Anderson's credit. Like, he's creating, like, a world of unbelievably believable characters. And and characters that you really can, I guess, identify with. Because that's what I'm doing. But, like, and, and, but, and situations that feel real. But for me personally, I just, I had a really hard time watching this movie. To the point where, like, I almost, I had, like, my finger hovering over the X button on Netflix. Holy like, a shit. few times where I was wow. just like, I can't do this. Like, I can't watch this person go through this and and the end it does and in typical adam sandler fashion you know it it tends to it works itself out and there's tends to be a, a slightly bit of a happily ever after type moment and there's a lot of great this is like a rom-com with beautiful camera work and really funny oh he is doing his his long complex takes here like, with adam sandler <laughs> with adam sandler and it's so that funny that in juxtaposition and <laughs> Yeah, the I want to. I want Alex. Yeah, that blue suit, the framing and the lighting and the weird like fuzziness of this like bright LA lighting. I don't know. I, I want to go into it more. I want to know what Alex's point. But yeah, even the like smaller shots. Like it starts out with this nice initial shot where Barry is in the corner of this barren looking room, and it's like I don't know. It just it just speaks. All the shots in this movie speak. Um, I have a tr- I have a lot to say, but I'll let Alex. Tell us first what what he thinks of this movie. Well, a few things I would say is I I can see why Adam Sandler has not shown up in any more Paul Thomas Anderson movies since this one. I don't. I'm not saying there's like a rift or anything between them, but it was hard to make him fit in this movie. I think. I think Adam. Really, I, I thought he was perfectly cast. See, I do not actually. I I, I think it's just because okay. of who he was. It's just because of Adam Sandler and who he is and like his career and everything like that. Like Tom Cruise had that too in Magnolia, but like it was just gone. When I watched Tom Cruise do his thing, it was just like, okay, you're this fucking crazy guy. But with Adam Sandler, there was something about it that just, I don't know. It kind of took me out of the element. Um, Do you think he was too much of an Adam Sandler character? No, which is good, right? Like that would just be. See, I would disagree. You think that he was? an Adam Sandler character? I think I think he was a variation on it. I think he was almost a commentary on it. And I think that's maybe why he was chosen for the role. Because like Adam Sandler always plays these roles where he's this he's basically a repressed man child in all of his movies. Mm-hmm. He's like has anger issues, he's a bully and it I guess is funny to some people. It's fucking awful to me. Mm-hmm. Um but this movie feels like if you took an Adam Sandler character and put him in like reality and how demented he would be, like I think it 
like is a turn on that that characterization that he always does which is why I think it's kind of brilliant casting and I also think I mean I personally think he does a great job it it showed me like I I actually thought after I watched it this last time like holy shit Adam Sandler could have been an actor if he had wanted to yeah I don't know there's something about his his performance to me that seemed like I think you're right though it is definitely a variation on that repressed like nature of most of his characters like almost like childish but I wanted to say that this movie I feel like was starting to tackle in really really like uh I can't even think of the word right now but anyways it it was very vigorous look at mental health and anxiety and things like that before we kind of gotten into this 21st century movement of like talking about mental health and things like that, like all the time and it being something that it's okay and all that stuff. I'm not saying that in like 2002, no, no, everyone was still like, Oh, you're seeing a shrink. What the fuck? None of that stuff. I just mean that this was one of the first movies that I saw that I think going off of what Jeff said, did make me a tad uncomfortable because there were moments of anxiety and things like that that he had that just seemed so real or seemed so, like, touching to me that, I don't know, Mm. it's just, it is an uncomfortable film. You guys say awkward, and I agree with that, but for some reason, I feel like it's an uncomfortable film. It's a, it has, it does have those elements of, like, treating something realistically, but at the same time, it's like, I want to call it a quirky movie, <laughs> but I, I feel like calling something quirky does a disservice to, to what it's doing. You just like, oh, quirky. It has this light, fluffy tone to the word. But it has, yeah, it has this this like whimsical score yeah. that's really strange yeah. and that's sort of at odds with the, 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 the tonality. Um, this time, um, yeah, John, this time John Bryan was actually... Um, just had broken up with Marilyn Rascob, who plays Elizabeth, one of Adam Sandler's younger sisters, the friend of Lena. Oh no way! And so they were dating <sighs> Marilyn Rascob and um and the composer, and they broke up like right before the movie started. Shit! So he had to like watch her act for eight hours a day while trying to score music <laughs> to her. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels like a weird fairy tale or a fable. Like, it's just a little left of center of reality. It's not his great American novel thing, I feel like. It's not. It is It is not one yeah. of those. Yeah, it's It's more like, let's just tell this weird story in a really interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I love I love the pudding shopping scene. <laughs> you have yeah, Adam Sandler dancing Talk in the aisles while Luis Guzman fills a, uh, a shopping cart full Jesus. of pudding. I love the I love the mannered classic style of the movie. There's lots of symmetrical framing. Like we talked about that initial shot as well. These little details. Like I like how he drives all the way to Utah carrying that <laughs> phone that he awkwardly ripped out. Yeah. All these like wonderful Riley comedic details. You have the you have the piano as well, which is super interesting. Yeah. It bookends the film. And to me, I wanted to ask you guys about this, but to me it was like this little dinky piano he finds. It feels like the signification that like music or variation are entering into Barry's mundane existence because it's capped off at the end when he runs awkwardly to Lena with the piano, which like is symbolic of her being his music or, or new vivaciousness. 
you know, something like that. You get the drift. Yeah, just something that broke up the monotony of his life. And Lena was that thing. And so he finds some kind of, like, focus on that because it was the one thing that, like, broke that cycle. It's a very pretty movie. It's gorgeous. I like the color. Yeah, it's very colorful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah, it's a very colorful movie. They use lighting very interestingly. He very, like, especially in the beginning of the movie, he intentionally points the camera at the sun. So you get a lot of, like, this overblown sunlight coming out of the top of the frame. The lots of bokeh yeah. effects and flares and lens flares. He very much plays with lighting a lot in this movie, which is interesting. It's it's so weird in an Adam Sandler kind of, like, fun little... Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's not an Adam Sandler movie. Adam Sandler's just in it. Yeah. I know, but <laughs> it know? feels like an Adam Sandler movie, though. Act- but it still does. It feel- this feels like an, if it, an Adam, if an Sandler, Adam movie Sandler movie were good. Was good. Yeah, it was written and directed competently. Like, I want to see Paul Thomas Anderson remake all of his movies. Billy <laughs> Mads. Like, old, fat Adam Sandler. Just do Big Daddy. And he's like, ah, don't piss on the wall. I pissed my pants. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm sure that's what Paul Thomas Anderson wants to do with his career. Remake it's, terrible Adam Sandler. That's what remake Happy was, Gilmore, right? which is like old Adam Sandler. Oh, man, this, I could go on. This is a hilarious Yeah. They, I like them talking dirty to, to each other in Hawaii. Yeah. I want to smash your face with a hammer. It's so fucking cute. <laughs> I just want to smash it and squeeze it. <laughs> You're like, I've said that shit to Jolene. <laughs> I've said that to my wife before. I've been like, you oh just God, said that on the beautiful. podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I would, you know, I would say I, this is in my top three Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Really? Oh, I, thought you meant I movies. love it. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, dude. No, not movies total, but uh, There Will Be Blood is the top, followed closely by Boogie Nights. And I think uh, I think Punch Drunk Love is number three. I put, the, I put it at the bottom. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. I mean, it's funny, like, we, we've talked about it in a couple of the other movies, but it's very much a movie where, like, what's going on technically can, can pass people by if if you're not paying attention to, like, oh, yeah. the craft of it. Because to me, it's, it's the, the craft of it is so high up in what makes it interesting to me continually. All, all elements of the craft. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, brilliant movie i mean there's little details like like when he first uh encounters the sex worker the day after and she's like asks him for money and he's like no thank you and he like brings his home phone to work with him no, no thank you yeah, and it's just there's just little details of like little continuation details from previous scenes and like just little fun things it's, it's, we got finally got a, a handle that's unbreakable finally smash it's like yeah. dust and confetti everywhere it's a funny movie it's got a lot it's of great really humor. funny yeah but i just uh i couldn't get behind just the realness of it and it, it touched a little too much to home for me as a fellow angry mess <laughs> <laughs> pudding lover myself well, all right that is uh that is the first half of our Paul Thomas Anderson discussion. We will be back next week to talk about the second half. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us, and we'll be back next week, and thank you to my co-hosts as well. Of course. Thank you, thank you. See you next week. And we shall return quite soon.